Amen. Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 21 for our passage. As you are hearing that, you'll realize that we are taking a break from our sermon series in Genesis, as this is the week often celebrated as the Holy Week, uh, the week in which we give particular focus and emphasis upon Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, um, His uh, leading to His death upon the cross, and then His resurrection on the third day. You know, you can also find the text on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. This is an important text for us in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, it is one of the texts that is recorded for us in all four gospel accounts. And we could have looked at any of them this morning. In fact, this is my third year preaching Palm Sunday, and we've looked at Mark, we've looked at Luke, uh, and so this year we will look at Matthew's account. But because we could have picked any of the Gospels and we landed on Matthew this morning, I thought it would be helpful just for a second for us to remember or be reminded of Matthew's purpose and intent in writing his Gospel. Um, all of the Gospels, let's be clear, have the desire, the purpose, the goal uh, to present Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is consistent among the four Gospels, uh, and that does not vary. However, you've got four men from four backgrounds and four perspectives, and so each one, um, not only that, also wrote to particular audiences. So you get different things emphasized. You get certain things given more attention than others. And in the case of Matthew's gospel, Matthew is really concerned with showing Jesus Christ as the promised king of the line of David. He wants us to see Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy and wants us to know the kingdom of heaven has come. Because of this, he primarily has a Jewish audience in mind. You will note that he is, is very heavy on prophecy. He's very heavy on Old Testament fulfillment. That being said, if you're a non-Jew this morning, that doesn't mean that you should just tune out. For as we started with, the gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. But knowing that does help us understand why Matthew highlights what he did and why he focuses on what he does. And so with that in mind, we will focus upon our passage this morning, but we will be going back to look um, in the past, and we will be going ahead to see what this will lead us to. <coughs> Excuse me. With that being said, um, would you please um, look with me to Matthew's account of the triumphal entry as I read for us the Word of God this morning. I'll begin in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent the two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them the cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please bow with me once again? So we ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, each and every one of us here has a great need to understand your truth, your word. We need to know our Savior. We need to know who He is and what He has done and why it matters for us this day. And so, Father, I pray that you would this day give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive your truth, and your word, that it might transform our lives. Father, be with us this day as we consider Jesus' march into Jerusalem and the days that followed and the events that took place. Might we proclaim your sovereignty. Might we humbly submit ourselves to you as God, our Lord, as our King, and as our Savior. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. It may seem silly to state this, but it is always helpful as you start a, a different book. Uh, the writer of the book of Matthew is Matthew. Now, some of you may chuckle at that and go, well, that's kind of a funny statement, but if you get into textual, textual scholarship, uh, uh, critical scholars love to tear apart um, authors, dates, and things of that nature. But we do affirm what seems to be clear from the Scriptures that Matthew wrote this. Matthew, the tax collector, one of the twelve. And because it was written by Matthew, the former tax collector, one of the twelve, he has a particular perspective on things, doesn't he? He, of course, was a Jew. He was a Jew in a profession that was necessary in Jewish culture, one that was not necessarily respected as it left room for dishonesty. It left room for taking advantage of people. Tax collectors were not um, the most loved or liked I guess some things don't change. But he knew Jewish practice. He understood what it meant to be amongst the Jews. He understood what it meant to be of that culture. And so when Jesus Christ calls him out of that and says, no, now you will follow me. You will leave your old life behind, your old ways behind, your old identity behind, and now you will be one of mine. What we actually see in Matthew and in the other disciples is a picture of what Christ does for us. That transformative work of taking us from where we were and taking us to where we now are. From who we were to who we are now. From what we did into what we are now called to do. And so Matthew, in the fact that he wrote this letter to us, serves as a beautiful case study, as does the other disciples, at the power of of the gospel and its transforming effect. Matthew, of course, tracks for us the life and the ministry of Jesus. He begins with a beautiful genealogy at the beginning of his letter, tying Old Testament to New. And if we go to Matthew 4.17, we really get a thesis statement for Matthew's gospel. Matthew 4.17, we hear these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
What a true statement to show what Jesus came to do and who he was to be, what he was to be about. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your transgression. Walk a new way, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, what was at hand but Christ himself. And so what was he saying? Jesus Christ, the king, is here. And Matthew will go to great lengths in his gospel to show that over and over and over again. And we see that emphasized in our passage this morning. And I want us to, to know that, and I want us to, to, to consider that this morning by looking at three different parts of our passage. I want us to see that, that Christ himself displays his kingship, and he articulates that clearly in the first three verses of our text. I also want us to see how Christ shows his authority by fulfilling prophecy about himself. We see that in uh, the middle verses, verses 4 through 7. And then in light of all of that, Christ compels us to respond to these truths. Because of who He is, because of what He has done, He says, respond to me. And we see that in the final verses, verses 8 through 11. And so let's walk through our passage, beginning with this display of kingship. And isn't it interesting to consider, I really had to reflect on this this week, um, and I think this is a safe statement to say, Jesus either walked or rode a boat everywhere he went to this point in his ministry. And I'm pretty sure that that's the case, that he either walked or rode a boat, or rode on a boat, um, at this point in his ministry, everywhere he went. Um, he, he did not have any other means of transportation, and he didn't even own a boat. Uh, he had to get on somebody else's boat when he did, until this passage. And so he used his own two feet to get anywhere he needed to go, um, or he was at the mercy of um, someone else. And so here, it should strike us when Jesus calls for a donkey. Um, this, is, this is like ordering an Uber here. This, this is, um, he is getting a mode of transportation. He spent three years walking around everywhere, and now he's like, I need a car. I've got to get a car. And so that should, should arrest our attention. We should go, hold on. Why now, Jesus? You've walked everywhere else. You can't be tired. You've been walking for three years. Like, you've got to be stamina-wise. You're, you're set. And he's like, I need, a, I need a vehicle. And so why? Why, why a donkey? Why, why at this point does Jesus make this decision? And I think there's two ways we need to look at this. First, why the donkey? And this is one we have to put ourselves in that Jewish mindset. We lose this in our common uh, world uh, in, a, in a time where, where donkeys are used, they're used as animals, pack animals, they they're, um, can be quite docile creatures at, <laughs> in certain circumstances. Um, they're, they're tools in our modern culture. So we would look at that and go, really, want a donkey, Jesus? Like, that's at all the options you've got. You know, we've recently been talking about the wealth of Abraham because of his camels. Couldn't Jesus at least have got ordered a camel? But no, he gets a donkey. But, but we want to be very careful with that because, biblically speaking, it was not uncommon for leaders, for rulers, for nobles, and important people to ride on donkeys. Um, and so we need to get out of our own mindset there and not consider that from our, our context but from theirs. And that would, from their context, it would be, this would be a vehicle of status. Um, th this would be the person pulling up in the limo. Uh, th this would be, you know, the person having the chauffeur. This, this was the, the premium. If you were coming in on donkey, you were important. 
And at the same time, we also ask the question, well, again, we ask that question, why? Why a donkey? Well, it was to display his kingship. It was because Jesus had a particular mission in mind. He had a focus. He had a goal. He needed to demonstrate something to the people. And to their credit, and and we're going to talk about this all throughout our time this morning, um, they kind of got it, didn't they? They kind of understood. What what do they proclaim? What do they proclaim? Hosanna to the Son of David. Now, Now, what is the importance of that statement? What is the importance of the Son of David? David's son was to sit on the throne forever. His kingship was to be a perpetual kingship, one that would be without end. And, and so when the crowd says, Hosanna to the son of David, they're saying, long live the king. And so in some senses, we've got to go, hey, you guys, all right, you figured it out. Jesus is king. You made the connection. But they didn't. <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. And so on, on the one hand, the fact that Jesus comes in on a donkey is a clear, definitive statement, I am king, behold it. But let's take a step back and let's ask again that question of why. Why the donkey? And then we get this, this wonderful, almost would call it bizarre story, right? Jesus says, I have need of a donkey. He tells the disciples, all right, go in the next village. And you're going to go into this next village and you're going to find a donkey uh, it's tied up outside of a, a person's house. And if they question you, just say, oh, the Lord has need of it, and they'll let it go. Now, a few things we know from the other Gospels as we look at the same event from different angles. One, um, this donkey, not only was it a donkey, it's a donkey that had never been ridden. This is not just a limo. This is a brand new, top of the line, the highest quality limo that you could get. Never been ridden, premium stock. Also, we know that the owner, that the master does ask. They do come out. What are you doing? And the disciples say, the Lord has need of it. And then what happens? Is there a negotiation? Is there a, well, that's going to cost you? Um, No. The next thing we know in all four Gospels, they're walking back to Jesus with a donkey. So what does that tell us about the owner of the donkey? The owner of the donkey had to, at some level, understand what it meant to submit to the Lord. At some level, the owner of the donkey had to fear God, trust God, and listen. Because at the mere mention of his name, that owner says, it's yours. Take what you need. Now, I want to zoom out even further. And I want to show that this too demonstrates the kingship of Christ. Because how did Jesus know that there was a donkey, an unridden donkey, at the house of a Christian in a neighboring village that would be home and willing to release it upon request? The only way he could know that, well, there's two ways, and and scholars debate this. Either he pre-ordered it, he called ahead, and he got it reserved, which is most likely not the case because they didn't do that kind of thing back then. Or he's the sovereign Lord and God and he ordained it to take place. 
Jesus ordained that this person would live in this village, would have the excess funds to raise an unridden donkey that they kept outside, not out of fear of it being stolen, so that in this moment, at this particular time, when Jesus comes or the disciples come on his behalf, they would give it to him. Again, Jesus is displaying his lordship, his kingship before us. He's showing us his sovereignty and his ability to speak into um, the, the affairs of mankind to accomplish his divine purposes. And so I, I, I challenge all of us this day to contemplate this as we read this passage and as you go through the Holy Week, start looking at the circumstances. Well, this circumstance had to be fulfilled in this way. Oh, well, this person had to have an upper room for them to go to. Oh, well, this person had to be the person that they spoke to. This person had to be available here. This person had to do that. This already had to have been laid out. And you start ending up with odds that are astronomical. Astronomical odds that everything would precisely lay out like it does. And yet, without fail, it all goes according to plan. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord and because Jesus Christ is King. He's the only one that has the authority to make it so. And so we see very clearly here Christ displaying His Lordship in and through the donkey. And maybe you find yourself saying, Aaron, that's, that's a bit of a stretch this morning. Hopefully not. But um, if you're like, I, just give me a little more. Can you give me more evidence? I can. It's in fulfillment of specific prophecy that's over 700 years old. The text itself backs up what we just said. Look at our second section here. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. This is two prophecies together, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But, but if, in case we're, we're wondering about the donkey and all that's going on, verse 4, this took place, Jesus taking the donkey and riding it into Jerusalem, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying... Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Don't get much clearer than that, do we? I don't know if you could have asked for a more specific prophecy to be uttered about this moment. And really, this is a, 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 it, it's, it's, it's from two places. It's from two locations. Um, you've got... Uh, the prophet Isaiah, prophet Isaiah in, in um, 62, 11, um, which is writing in around 700 B.C. Uh, Isaiah is writing in a time of Israel. He's trying to turn them back to the hearts of God. Um, he is rebuking them for their sin. He's, he's telling them to, to hold tight, to hang tough, to keep the faith. He says, Behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming. Just wait a little longer. Now, they didn't know that a little longer was 700 years, but that king would come. Just keep on trusting. Keep on waiting. That king is coming. And in that, um, in that specific prophecy that Isaiah says, he says, when that king comes, his reward and recompense would go before him. His Reward and his recompense. What that king deserves and what that king judges or declares will go before him. 
And, and as I mentioned earlier, we have to put this in context of the Holy Week that's before us. Where are we headed with Christ? What is before Him? What is the justice that Christ is going to bring about this week in, in history? Death. He's going to bring about death. Payment for sin. Sacrifice. His recompense will go before Him. But in that death, what does He do? He conquers death. He conquers Satan. He conquers the grave. He has victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? His reward and his recompense goes before him. So Isaiah told us over 700 years before this took place, your king is coming, and with him will come reward and will come payment. And then it's not just Isaiah that makes this, but Zechariah also says similar words. And it's, it's more likely than not that you take this from um, Zechariah, um, the, the whole of this, um, but, but Isaiah is clearly at play here too. But Zechariah 9.9, just a couple hundred years after Isaiah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now one of the major themes in the, the book of Zechariah is that the warrior king of Israel is coming. The, the one who will conquer, who will defeat our enemies, the one who will bring justice and righteousness is on his way. Do not lose hope. Do not lose faith. The day of the Lord will be quickly upon us. And so with those prophecies and putting yourself in the Jewish mindset, you're in Jerusalem that day and you see Jesus Christ coming, a man you've heard of before. You've declared him a prophet. What he says seems to be true. He speaks with authority. And then you see the donkey. You see the foal coming before you. Your mind would immediately flash back to these passages to these moments of hope, these moments of promise, and you would have to conclude the King has arrived. We must bow before this King. And again, for the second time this morning, they kind of get it. They, they kind of get it. They declared Him King. They celebrate His coming. They knew that He was that warrior King. He will come and defeat our enemies, enemies, and in their mind, most presently, Rome itself. But it is interesting, isn't it? He doesn't come on a war horse. Jesus does ride on a war horse, but that's not coming for several more books. To see that, flip to the book of Revelation. He comes on the white horse. He comes in judgment and might and power. Now, out of his mouth, the sword of judgment. No, here he comes on a donkey. What does the prophecy say? He would come humble, on a, on a small animal, meekly, gently. This is why you get such a dramatic turn within a week, where you get some that are going to shout Hosanna this day. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, crucify, crucify him, crucify him. Because he didn't do what they thought he would. What do you mean? He's the warrior king. Why is, he, why is he letting Rome beat him up like that? Why is he submitting to the emperor? Why, why would he be taken to the cross? 
That's not the conquering king we want. You know, let's get another guy. Let's get rid of him. We don't like this option. Is there something else? But the last point I, I want to make this morning, and, and I really want us to wrestle with this, Jesus Christ has declared himself king. Jesus Christ has declared himself king, and it's, he's been affirmed as king by the crowd. Jesus Christ has declared himself king and affirmed himself king in response to specific prophecy and fulfillment of particular passages of Scripture. And so it's backed up. And then he calls everyone to respond. We all must respond to this truth. We all must respond to this reaction. We see him. We hear the truth. We know the prophecies. What do we do? And that's what we see in our our final points. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I love how Matthew emphasizes this, and we, we can't miss it. Most of the people took off their coats and laid palm branches before Christ as He entered Jerusalem. Now, this would have been a, a sign of submission. Uh, this would be a... Um, uh, the best I can think of in modern time, rolling out the red carpet maybe, um, you know, this, the roads were dusty and dirty. Uh, maybe there was mud if it had rained recently. Uh, this would have been kind of a gross trek into town. And so there's, what they're doing is they're basically humiliating themselves to protect the royalty. They're, they're taking off their own coat, subjecting themselves to the mud and the muck and to the dust and to the dirt so that they could avoid it. And so they cut the, the branches, and I think that's the smarter option, like, why well, get off your own coat when you can cut a palm branch? And they lay it down on the road. They, they, they lay a, a blanket, if you will, on the road. They lay out the red carpet for His coming. But I, I love that Matthew emphasizes this. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And I... One theologian made the point of this, and I, I highlight this again this week, um, or uh, this morning. There is not a unanimous decision here. It did not say everyone in the presence of Christ humbled themselves, took off their cloaks, and cut down branches. In fact, Matthew makes a very clear point here. Most is not all. That means some people did not. Some people saw Jesus coming and said, I'm not doing that. Why would I humble myself before this guy? Look at him, he's on a donkey. God, why would I, what am I submitting to Jesus for? And later on, we're told that the praises are shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord by those who came before Jesus, walked before Him, and those who came after Him. Well, who does that leave out? Here's a beautiful practical example from our liturgy this morning. Our children walked and marched with palm branches. Did you? There were shouts of praise from the crowds who followed Jesus and who went before Jesus. How about those that were on the sides of the road? 
How about those already present? If you think about it in the terms of the parade, it was the front of the line and the back of the line. But it didn't necessarily say that even those in the crowd joined in. Now, we know some did. But again, we have to leave with the conclusion not every single one. In fact, we know for certain there were people present who did not join in the proclamation. When you think of any groups of people that might not have been too happy about Jesus being in Jerusalem declaring what he did. The Pharisees, for example. The Sadducees. The Jewish elite. The leaders of their time were not thrilled that Jesus was coming and declaring himself king. Maybe there were Romans in present, at, at present. Maybe they were there. They certainly wouldn't be celebrating the king has come. That, that wouldn't fit with their viewpoint or their system. And I love, I think this is most indicative um, of what's going on, this, this final point in our text. You look down... To verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, so the, the, his kind of parade or, or processional has made its way into Jerusalem, the whole city stirred up. So there's a reaction. Again, some people, this is awesome. We're so glad you're here. Some people, I don't know about this. Some people, I don't like it. <laughs> I think this is most telling. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Some people are just confused. Some people are not sure. Some people don't know what to make of it. And let me ask you something this morning. Has anything changed? Has anything really changed nearly 2,000 years later? Don't we see to this day the same responses to Jesus Christ? As we're presented with our Savior, as we're presented with our King, we see the evidence Biblically, scripturally, it's, it's proven true time and time again. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of specific prophecy. We see God's plan of salvation working all the way back to Genesis. And then we have it laid out before us. And some of us do take off our cloaks and bow our faces. Some of us do say, Hosanna to the King. Glory and praise and honor be to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of David who sits on the throne. That is to submit to Jesus, to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then, maybe some today, here, and we know certainly in the world, they just, eh, it's another thing going on in the world today. And you could find them, and you can, you can think how they would be thinking, well, this is sure slowing down my business. Maybe they needed to cross the street to get to work on the other side, or maybe they needed to go to a department store, or they needed to go pick up a loaf of bread. And You've got a parade in town. If any of you have been a part of a parade or anything like that, you know it kind of blocks things off. And they're kind of, eh, this is inconvenient. A lot of people respond to Christ this day like that, don't they? This sure is inconvenient. You get some people, though, that they, they understand, they, they hear what's being said, they, they, they make sense of it, and they're hostile to it. You have people today who do not see Christ as Lord, do not see Christ as King, and in fact, they see Him as a threat to their own power and authority and leadership and might, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who will take it so far as to stir up the same crowd to 
crucify Jesus Christ. But I, if I really did think about it, and I, I think about all the groups and all the reactions, probably in society, and it's becoming more and more so today, even in our American culture, that it's the last group that comprises the largest. Who is that? I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus Christ. Who is that? Why would you do that? What does that mean? What is that about? You get people that don't know, that they don't understand, that they've not heard. So we see in the text, and we think about in our culture today, we must come to terms with this, right? This is the great question. This is the question of our lives. What do you do with Jesus? We've heard the testimony. Hosanna to the son of David. He's verified himself as the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes representing the Lord as Lord himself. Hosanna in the highest. He is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. In that sentence alone is about four prophecies we could go and look at. About where he would be born. What he would come to do. How he would be called. And yet we, just like the people of that day, are told, respond. Respond to Him. Will you celebrate His arrival? Will you declare Him King of your Lord and Lord of your life? Will you let Him walk on by? Each and every one of us one day will stand before God the Father on the day of judgment. And we will give an account for our lives. And when God asks us, why do you deserve to be in my kingdom? Why should I let you in this day? Our only hope, the only hope we can have is for us with tearful eyes to say, because Jesus Christ is my King, my Lord, and my Savior. That's the only right answer here. And most of them missed it. Even, to be fair, the disciples, most of them missed it at this point. They'll get it in a couple of weeks. But you have the same evidence they had. And so I ask you this day, how will you respond? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh, that each and every one of us here would be able to say with joy and with gladness, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, my King, my Savior, my Redeemer, and my friend, Jesus Christ. Father, it is so significant that Christ went into Jerusalem. He did so in the way that He did in fulfillment of specific prophecy. Lord, it's significant that Jesus knew the outcome of this week, and yet He still rode in. He knew what would happen as He stirred up the crowd, and yet He still went in. He did so willingly, because He knew that which we needed was payment, was forgiveness, was the way to be right and whole again before God the Father. And it would only come through the King Himself laying down His life for the sake of His people. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for laying down Yourself for us. May we trust in You and hope in You. May we consider that sacrifice this week. May we mourn the cross and may we celebrate the resurrection morning. And Father, would You impress that upon all of our hearts this day, this week, and for every day 
for the remainder of our lives. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.